Today's episode is brought to you by Courtney Cook's The Way She Feels, My Life on the Borderline in Pictures and Pieces, a witty and one-of-a-kind debut graphic memoir detailing and drawing the life of a girl with borderline personality disorder, finding her way and herself one day at a time. Mara Altman says the book is audaciously human and adds that the way she feels is a rainbow during the rain. Piper Weiss calls the memoir a lifeline to anyone who's ever felt alone. The way she feels is out on June 29th from Tin House and available for pre-order now. In the time between the recording of my conversation with today's guest and the recording of this intro, Anna Cana Schofield is no longer shortlisted for the Carey Group Irish Novel of the Year, which I mention in this conversation, but she has since won Irish Novel of the Year for Bina, her latest book. You might wonder if it is a coincidence that June features two Irish writers back-to-back, first Darren Nagrifa and now Anna Cana Schofield. It is somewhat coincidental in that I'm in conversation with many more writers now outside of the United States since the pandemic began, but it is also partially thanks to a publishing house I didn't know well, but should have known better. Anna Kane's new book, Bina, is out with a press that I've long adored, New York Review of Books, and I'm surprised that this is possibly the first book from them I've had on the show. But her previous books, Martin John and Malarkey, came out on a press I wasn't familiar with, the Ontario-based Biblioasis. And when they sent me Anna Kena's books, they also slipped in a copy of Darren Nagrifa's A Ghost in the Throat, probably knowing I couldn't pass it up. So they are to thank, honestly, for this Irish doubleheader. If you enjoy Between the Covers, consider becoming a listener supporter. For Between the Covers is a show that only endures because of listener support. Receive the resource-rich emails that come with each episode. Join the collective brainstorm about who we should invite on the show going forward. And check out the other possible benefits, from collectibles from the likes of Ursula K. Le Guin and Nikki Finney, to bonus supporter-only audio readings that include everything from Craft Talks by Marlon James, poetry readings by Richard Powers and Jory Graham and Darren Nagrifa and Jenny Ophel, to many other things. All of this can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for today's conversation with Anna Kana Schofield about the Irish novel of the year, Bina. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. 
artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is Irish-Canadian writer Anna Kena Schofield. Schofield's first novel, Malarkey, won the 2012 Amazon First Novel Award, the 2013 Debut Litzer Prize for Fiction, and was picked a Best Book of the Year by the Toronto Star, the Montreal Gazette, the Edmonton Journal, and the New Statesman, among others. She's also the author of Rereading the Riot Act, an art book that is part scrapbook, part research diary, which uses the 1935 Reading of the Riot Act to unemployed workers and their families at a peaceful gathering as a frame to examine Vancouver's history of public protest. Anna Kena Schofield's second novel, Martin John, told through the point of view of a groper and flasher, was a finalist for the 2015 Giller Prize, one of Canada's most prestigious literary awards, the Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize, and the UK's Goldsmith Prize for Fiction, for a British or Irish author that opens up new possibilities for the novel form. On nearly everyone's Best Book of the Year list for 2015, Talia Field says this about it. Martin John is singular in contemporary literature. The novel takes a deeply imagined, almost operatic view of marginal characters trapped in the absurdities and perversions of systems, mental, social, and familial. Anakena uses devastatingly specific prose that conversely portrays the poetry of human suffering. Moving, profoundly human, insightful, and darkly humorous. Lydia Yuknovich adds, You might hold your breath while reading this novel. The story transgresses the body with or without our permission and illuminates important ideas we ordinarily look away from. And yet it is now, more than ever, that we need to reread the body. Schofield's work has been anthologized in The Long Gaze Back, an anthology of Irish women writers, and Alchemy, Writers on Truth, Lies, and Fiction. And she's here today to talk about her third novel, just out in the United States from the New York Review of Books, Bina. Bina was shortlisted for the 2020 Goldsmith Prize and is currently a finalist for the Cary Group Irish Novel of the Year. The jury for the Goldsmith Prize described Bina as follows. Startlingly original and horribly funny, Anna Kena Schofield's Bina is the rare thing, a black comedy about euthanasia. Composed as a series of warnings scribbled on the backs of envelopes from the safety of her bed, the narrator is a septuagenarian who has had enough, and we can see why. Her front garden is filled with political activists, her back garden with medical waste. Her lodger stayed on for an extra 10 years, and she's suspected of murdering her best friend. In all her despair and empathy for the despair of others, Bina emerges from her elliptical missives addressed to everyone but no one in particular as an eccentric heroine of monumental moral courage. Kirkus in its starred review calls Bina a masterwork that should cement Bina and Schofield as one of the great voices in recent fiction. 
The Guardian calls Schofield an unabashed agitator, a conjurer of discomfort, whether it's the agonized mind of a sex offender or the sorrows of a disintegrating marriage. Like her absurdist compatriots Beckett, Joyce, O'Brien, Schofield's novels are existentially confounding, syntactically wild, and buckshot with wit. Finally, Rachel Cusk adds, Vina is a fiction of the rarest and darkest kind, a work whose pleasures must be taken measure for measure with its pains. Few writers operate the scales of justice with more precision. The novel's themes, male violence, the nature of moral courage, the contemporary problems of truth and individuality, the status of the female voice, could hardly be more timely or germane. Schofield's sense of injustice is unblinking and without illusion, yet her writing is so vivacious, so full of interest and lust for life, she is the most compassionate of storytellers, wearing the guise of the blackest comedian. Welcome to Between the Covers, Anna Kena Schofield. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I've been really looking forward to talking to you. I was thinking of when I was talking to Alyssa Washuda and how much I was anticipating her conversation because she's so focused on form around nonfiction. And I feel like in a way you have this same similar obsession with form in fiction, the ways you foreground form, the ways form can itself be content, the questions you have around how to move a, uh, a book forward with form rather than through story, uh, the ways form can reflect or shape character. But before we, we talk about who Bina is or what the story is about, I thought we could start with form, but not with the form of Bina itself, but perhaps we could start with um, this interesting relationship between the three books, because they all stand alone as discrete, independent novels. But there's a playful way they're connected to each other, and they're not just connected to each other where minor characters in one book become central characters in another. There's also some formal ways they're connected. And I'm thinking maybe most pr prominently the, the way the footnote evolves and births novels. So could you, could you talk to us a little bit about what might seem like an invisible connective tissue between the three books and how some of that has emerged from the ways you've played with form? The first thing that strikes me as, uh, as I'm listening to you is it's kind of akin to when people talk about humor, you know, not to not to immediately cross the street from form. Um, so I think, well, humor to me is sort of oxygen. So so when we're asked to sort of separate these elements. I mean, I don't understand humorless people. I just uh, it's just the one thing I don't understand. Um, because I think life is, is so sad and so awful for many people that I don't see how you could survive it unless you see the humor in, in it. So form, one of the things I constantly say is when people, you know, <laughs> come to me <laughs> about my novels, why? So let's just start with Mark John. Um, they'll say, um, well, one person really stands out, and that is this BBC interviewer who said, in the opening part of her interview was, and I will say she's a great interviewer, 
because uh, she said, um, I didn't like your novel. I think I'm glad you wrote it, but I'm not sure. Explain yourself. Now, I have to say, my memory is a bit fu fuzzy, so it might be some other version of that. And I'm sure there's somebody out there on the Internet that's going to rush off and fact check it and come back and say, you know, she didn't say that. She said, mow the lawn. That was what I heard. And I remember being very struck um, that I'd reached this kind of point with my work where I was getting on this program, which was to um, celebrate, well, not celebrate, but it's only for women. And I was on this program because my Martin John had been nominated for the Goldsmiths Prize. And I just thought it was so interesting um, that I arrived at that point. And, and, and it was just so strange to me that, that the terms of art were kind of absent in the equation. So, so why would you expect to find, why would you expect to like a novel about somebody who's credibly disturbed? Um, although I would contend that there are likable qualities in that book. Um, so this isn't gonna answer your question, but I, I, I'm, you know, I always struggle with the separation between I don't know. I often think, well, did somebody drop me on my head when I was a child? Because my brain just does just see things so differently in terms of the novel. Um, I don't understand why people write kind of these heapy paragraphic novels. I mean, life is not really heapy and paragraphic. Is that even a word? Paragraphic. Uh, it sounds good. I do want to ask you about your origin story around writing I mean, all these words are problematic, innovative or experimental. But before we do talk about any of, of that, talk to us more specifically about the footnote. I, your books have become more, um, have moved farther and farther away from heapy paragraphic novels, one yeah. book to the next. But we also have, have this sort of um, the birth of one novel from a footnote and then, and then an explosion of footnotes. So t talk to us about how Martin John came and, and then what okay. happened after. Whoa, 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 whoa. Because it's not quite that. Just to put you back in your footnote, in your footnote folder. It's that the first novel, there's one single footnote in the first novel, which is see Martin John, a footnote novel. And that was pure devilment, self-provocation, right? So did I know, had I written a book called Martin John, a footnote novel? No, obviously not, because it took me 10 years to write that first book and it's kind of lost. So actually, now that I think back on it, it was a really stupid thing to do because, because what if I hadn't written the next book? You know, a bunch of people on the Internet would probably come and go, well, where is it? I'm not reading this book because you promised me. But it was self-provocation. Um, and even when I think back, it's so weird to think, why did I do that? Because that character was called Bay Rouge. He wasn't even called. Was he called Martin John? I can't remember. And then, so really, so the first novel only has one footnote. The second novel is a footnote. The entire book is a footnote. There's no single footnote in that book. And it's a footnote to the first novel. So I have like titles. So it's Malarkey, a novel in episodes, Martin John, a footnote novel to Malarkey, and then Bina, a novel in, in warnings, warnings, warnings. So then in Bynote, somehow I took a hammer to the footnote and it's covered in these footnotes. Um, so that's kind of what happened. In essence, it's true what you're saying. In essence, 
the notion of the footnote was born within that first book, which only had a footnote that had like no purpose. Yeah, it was absolute provocation, and um, and I think self provocation. I mean, because my books are already apparently provocative so you know you know when you write them you're not sitting down going well how on earth can I startle the world any further right as I sit startled by the world all day long um you know you're just doing whatever weird thing you do is you know one of the things I wonder about is like somehow we've become so determined to pin down process but we don't know. We don't know how art making happens. We don't know that process. Because God, if we did, I mean, Elon Musk or one of his soldiers would be right now writing an algorithm to make like a downloadable program that everybody would just use to write novels. Yeah, I'm sure they're trying. Oh, no doubt they're trying. <laughs> I think it's deeply frustrating, though, for them because, you know, well, I don't know, because listen to me, I'm just making it up just now imagining all these people out there um, doing this thing that, to be honest, I probably have no interest in doing it. At the end of the day, I'm sure if you're a, you know, a programmer, you're not sitting down necessarily at the end of your day. Who knows? Maybe you are. I just imagine, I don't know. I think people are mostly sitting, I think people sort of sitting down watching kind of true crime movies. That <laughs> seems to be... <laughs> Everything seems to be about getting murdered these days. Um, also, the pandemic, in fairness, I mean, we weren't expecting the pandemic, so we need to revise everything about life now that we've got a pandemic. I was expecting the pandemic. I've been ready for the pandemic. For the last <laughs> yes. Well, I wonder. I was ahead of the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I want to. I want to um, return to your statement that life doesn't happen in in. A heapie paragraphic sort of way. Uh, in your conversation with Lydia Yuknovich, when Martin John came out, she said the following. When I first met you at Wordstock here in Portland, you took my breath away. We were both speaking on a panel about writing and the body. When you read your excerpt, I couldn't breathe. I was both smitten and I felt that thing I long to feel but rarely do, kindred. Your attention to formal investigations as equal in intensity to content investigations, tickled me. I remain loyal as a dog to you and your work. So I guess I think people would be interested, you know, a lot of people listening are writers or artists or aspiring writers or artists. If there was a time, was there a time when you were like banging your head against a wall trying to write heapy, paragraphic uh uh, literature, like I'm thinking of like George Saunders talking about how for years he tried to write like Hemingway and it was almost accidental when he started realizing he was graded impersonations. And then he, he wrote something sort of off the cuff and showed it to his wife. I'd like to, um, I'd like to thank George Saunders for stopping writing like Hemingway. That was, that was good of him. Because <laughs> I think so too. I, I like George Saunders a lot. I yeah. like him. I mean, I actually really like listening to him. Um, well, what about? I, I did have some problems with his book about the Russians. I think I just like George Saunders being George Saunders, like writing these George Saunders Saunders-ish books. Yeah. Were you at one point trying to mold into or conform to like expectations around story in the twentieth and twenty first century, and then something put you on a different track? Was there a time when I was banging my head off the wall? Yes. Yesterday. 
yesterday I was banging my head off the wall. I'm banging my head off the wall consistently. I don't think there's a writer out there who's like, I don't know, making interesting work who isn't banging their head off the wall. I think the nature of writing anything is totally demanding. I mean, I really recently realized it's really difficult to write a book, even bad books. It's so difficult to write a book, even a really bad book that's terrible is so much work. So even trying to write like a mediocre book is fucking tons of work. My favorite description I've ever heard about, because I hate the word good. Good doesn't mean anything. Good's pizza, good's ice cream. But Vivian Gornick talks about books that achieve literature. And I feel that most writers want to be moving towards that flight path. I don't know if any of us ever really take off and achieve literature, but I, I just love that as a, as a measurement. Okay, so I have to go back, though, to Lydia. Because it's so interesting, you know, all the things she observed at that panel. Because all I remember from that panel is the fact that I was really interested in the fact that she's eating banana bread. <laughs> First of all, <laughs> she was eating a piece of banana bread. Second of all, like Lydia is a rock star in your in your city. Um, and I actually didn't know her because, you know, I just was this was in 2012. I just didn't know anything or anybody in 2012. I mean, I still don't really know anything or anybody. So I rocked up in Portland and the place was stuffed to the gills. Right. It was so busy. The person I think who organized the panel couldn't even get in because, I mean, Lydia's you know, she's like the Rolling Stones in Portland. And so we sat on this panel. And then I remember Lydia reading this absolutely red hot thing about fisting. And I mean, I had no idea, never really heard of her. And I was just sitting there. And I felt, I remember saying, um, I remember say, announcing before I read, well, beaming in from the early learning center here because I felt like we were on this panel I think it was something to do with I can't even remember the title of it because often you end up on panels called sort of ladies and lattes you know but this one was I think about it might have had something to do with sex I can't even remember but I just remember thinking oh my god I had never heard anything like this um and it was just a, a thing that she read. I think it wasn't, it was just something she'd written recently. It was very much like, here's something I prepared 10 minutes ago. I mean, of course it was great because it was Lydia. I just remember thinking, oh my God, I'm just like beaming in from the nunnery here. Um, so it was so funny just remembering that. And I read the only scene in that first novel, which is where the mother is watching the son give, um, um, yeah, and sorry for people who might be having their their omelets well I'm not sorry for you actually it's a lovely thing to be listening to while you're eating an omelet there's a scene in malarkey where the son I think is anally penetrating another boy over a rock in a field and the mother sees him <laughs> is that a fair description of what happens <laughs> I think some people will just call it butt fucking but um that just seems very contemporary um for the mother watching it but anyway so and it's very funny uh and I actually wanted to take that scene out of the book because I thought oh god it's too much too much too much you know and but then luckily a friend of mine the artist Marina Roy said oh no you can't take that out it's fantastic and then I spent about three years dining out on that one scene <sighs> so yeah that scene saved me in Portland because I had no nothing so that's my memory of Portland 
uh, I just remember being astonished by basically the banana bread, the rock star reaction and, and her fisting piece, which compared <laughs> to what Lydia came up with, is a bit basic, really. In fact, listening to all these quotes, it's a bit embarrassing. This is why I, I can't write blurbs because I'm terrible at it. Okay, what was the other? So that's the index. It was that and that. And then the third thing, which was your question. Yes, I spent 10 years trying to write um, a novel. It was a kind of a lyrical sort of Irish novel that I thought was how novels had to be written. Uh, kind of in the, you know, kind of like a column, like Column Tobin or John McGahern or any of these um, writers who are great writers, um, you know, but I'm just interested in something else. I'm interested in making something else. And I just couldn't contract my prose or constrict it to fit in that form. And um, I remember one time a mentor saying to me, Anna Kena, you know, things happen logically for a reason, like sequentially. And that was probably <laughs> the best thing anybody ever said to me because I just know that's not, that's not right. That's wrong. Nothing happens logically in life. Like if, if things happen logically, then nobody would ever die because yeah. nobody wants to be, well, there are people who want to be dead, obviously, but, but nobody, I, I don't want, you know, my people to be dead. So if it was logical, I would say, stop dying. You know what I mean? Or stop being nasty or stop. Well, I was going to say stop raining, but that's not true. I wouldn't want the rain to stop because the rain is interesting. So that's my point. It was a disaster. I spent 10 years flustered failing i was a disaster i thought i would never work i'd never get out of the blackberry bushes you know the brambles um and all around me people were publishing novels and and i was just never satisfied so i ended up writing three books essentially to write malarkey and then that's one of the reasons why these books have kind of splintered off into these other works because, of course, I wrote so much to find my way to a form. And, I mean, I'm still doing it. I'm still trying to understand. And, and you know, I keep telling myself, well, maybe you should write easier books because um, you'd have more readers, mm. right? But then I remember, well, the only reason I have any readers is because I do something un different or unusual. It's not that I set out to do it. It's just, it's just, I think I'm constitutionally incapable of like doing anything, maybe like a normal functioning person. <laughs> well, well, let's, let's talk a little bit about the form of Bina in the sense that one of the ways it has a form is the form of the warning. So it's a novel in warnings, um, yeah. much like this you're saying to us. Be, don't you think this should be like an interview in warnings? Well, you already have. You said stop dying, stop. Yeah, like, true. so Bina, Bina talks to us. She is warning us. Um, but tell us about warnings as form, um, telling a story through warnings, and what warnings tell us about Bina as a character. Well, we're living in a time. Like, think about the last 20 years, really, since, let's say, 9-11. It's 20 years since 9-11, isn't it? I'm not very good at numbers. 
you know, we've lived in a, in a, almost a canopy of fear, you know, or under a canopy of fear. And I remember, you know, I have a son, he's, he's 21. God bless him. He's upstairs sleeping off a long night of video gaming and writing movies. He's writing screenplays. Um, so one of us has a future around here. Um, but I remember <laughs> thinking of, you know, in his uh, infancy and as a young child, and I just remember thinking of how how to kind of let him know that not everybody was out to hurt him. And I mean, that that has to be even more like thematic depending on you know where you live and all the factors like you know you must like I'm just thinking just comes to me as I'm thinking about black mothers I mean they must be dealing with this you know at a level that I can't even imagine um so but I remember trying to balance giving him the, the idea that the whole world was out to hurt him that, you know, that, that, and, and I just remember struggling with that and also struggling with the fact that on some level you do, you are afraid. You're always afraid that your child will be in pain or you'll do anything to prevent your child's suffering. I just remember being conscious of that. Um, I also grew up, don't forget, I mean, you know, I'm, I, I feel like a lot of my literary influences is actually the longer I go on uh, as a writer, I'm 50 now, I've been at this since I was 20, early 20s, the more I realized how influenced I am maybe by the liturgical. By um, the what? By the what? The liturgical, like the liturgy. Sorry, is, I don't know, is that even a word? Uh, liturgical? Yeah. It's a nice word. It is a word. And I'm, all, I'm actually all for making up words. Um, that's what I love about language. I love the invention of language. I love that. I love. I love the way language evolves. Um, patois. I love all of it. I love sound. So, so I, I think if I think about like, let's think about the most basic, like biblical education, the commandments. Like the commandments tell you these are the things you should do and these are the things you shouldn't do. I understand people of deep faith in a way that surprises me. There's nobody I like to listen to more actually than Marilyn Robinson. I love to listen to Marilyn Robinson. She is a person of deep faith and theological leanings. Um, and I think she's such a brilliant writer because I can read her, even though I could basically be considered a utopic pessimist slash atheist. But what I am a, a person of is deep wondering and curiosity. And so it's not so because I was exposed every single week to you know the gospels the word according to god i was constantly instructed on what was wrong and what was right and you know founding principle of catholicism is guilt i mean it's like the bone marrow um and so you can never get away really from that and you know any catholic you meet you'll always share that great bond of guilt mm -hmm. um now of course as i talk to you i mean this is a wonderful thing about publishing a book it's not actually that much that's great about publishing a book um, because, you know, you always worry, you know, you know, and then you have to worry about writing another book because you feel like you'll never be able to do it again. There's a warning. Um, but this is a great thing about publishing a book is other people read it and then they tell you about what you're up to because you can't know. In my view, you can't know what you're up to because God, if you knew what you were up to, you'd make it better. 
you know, and that would be, you know, <laughs> and that would be kind of disastrous because yeah. because it wouldn't be what it became. I mean, okay, it might be because something might be better on one hand, but it also might be tidier. You know, it might not be as interesting a piece of, of literature because it would be knowing, it would, it would understand itself in a way that I feel the reader completes these things. You know, I like the idea of Blanchot's that the writer's just the first reader of the work and that, that the, well, I don't know if he, I don't know if he actually said this part, but I'm, I'm saying this part whereby the reader comes in and then they complete it. And every time it's a different iteration. Now that is really hard to stomach if you are foolish enough ever to look at Goodreads. Don't do it. Or any of those, you know, Martha in the basement says, you know, you know, Pete in his, in his pajamas declares, you know, that this woman doesn't have pride and Pete in his pajamas knows better. But, but that's my point. It's every time it's a different iteration. Yeah. Think of how contrasting people's experiences are when they open a book, you know? Like literally some people, I'm sure, want me just banned. I mean, there was a woman on, online recently calling for a content warning. Uh, sorry, there's a crow outside. I might get excited if the uh, Stella's J shows up. It's this blue David Bowie looking bird. He's amazing. He doesn't come very often. So he might come today. Um, there's a woman online I saw and she was given out saying that Bina needed kind of like, you know, they used to have, what was her name? Not Nancy Reagan, whoever, Barbara Bush or one of them said there should be stickers on rap music, you know, warning of explicit lyrics. Somebody wanted like one of those stickers on the front of Bina. That's and she wanted it on the front of Bina, wait for it, for animal abuse. For animal abuse? <laughs> abuse i couldn't i think it was because eddie like murdered her ducks yeah oh it's just like well yeah so well, you know obviously we know there's lots of great people on the internet and um, but my point being that the iteration right that and so as i'm talking to you or listening to you it, it strikes me like the subconscious is just making up stuff in relation to what i was up to and it doesn't really matter because it does sound pretty good so far. And you're going to edit it, right? <laughs> yes. So my, my point is that maybe there's another process after you've written the book. And that is finally being able to understand something about what's in the book, even yeah. though you can't actually remember what's in the book because you're 50. Well, to take to take your your com your completion of Blanchot's thought <laughs> about about the reader completing the the writer's work essentially yeah. um i feel like there's there's something kind of ingenious about the opening of bina so at the beginning bina says i do swear in this place you will find warnings if you heed them they will be yours if you don't you were warned but then you make it impossible for the reader to heed them the first two warnings we get are no ditch and no door but the first two chapters that follow are named Ditch and Door. So from the get-go, we're in a problematic relationship with Bina and her warnings. And this made me think of, you've said in a couple interviews that the nihilistic penguin or the demented penguin in Werner Herzog's film is one of the inspirations for this book. This is a penguin that for some reason doesn't head back to the colony or toward the feeding grounds along the edge of the ice, but instead is making this mysterious beeline toward the interior 
going hundreds of kilometers towards the mountains and towards its certain death. And no one can stop it. And yet no one knows why he's going that way, despite the warnings. And I wondered if this is how the penguin is an inspiration, because in these opening pages, you've made us all as readers into nihilistic penguins, it seems. Well, I mean, I think you overdid it on the penguin front. (laughs) (laughs) I think you kind of, I can't believe you actually went and like transcribed the whole thing. Um, It was really just a fleeting image of that penguin. And it's also the voice of Werner Herzog. He was walking towards certain death. You know, he has that interesting timbre in his voice. Although he also is a very knowing male. It's a very knowing male voice that he, you know, occludes. Is that a word? (laughs) We'll use it. We'll use that, you know. Um, So I love it, though. I love it. I don't think I've necessarily made you all into nihilistic penguins. I love, I didn't even notice this. See, this is what I love about it. I just skip all the rest of it. I actually skip ever writing another book as well, just to, because it's so interesting. I didn't even know that. That's so true. She has that warning. I mean, that kind of sounded like it would be good on a gravestone. (laughs) You know what I mean? The other thing is, don't forget, humans are just inherently contradictory. So if I'm going to give you a human, right, um, I'm not going to give you a really straightforward one. I don't know any straightforward humans. Um, I know wonderful, wonderful, wonderful humans. I do. I'm very, very blessed. Uh, I'm very good friends. But I mean, maybe I'm just contradictory. I just think humanity is so contradictory that, and, and it's such a disastrous mess. And there's a big fucking melt right now. It's just a big meltdown, just melting into each other, melting each other away melting the planet away and what are we doing what do you think would be the smart thing to do today if your free fridge freezer or your fridge blew and everything started melting inside it what would you do you'd take it out you know and you'd either preserve it or you'd, you'd eat it what do humans do they go ah fuck it we're gonna go to mars <laughs> Excuse me. like elon musk as we speak has like sent his fridge to mars do, do you know what I mean? We're like, well, we just can't wait to fake it, man. Let's not fix this. We don't make it. Let's just take the whole fridge, shoot it up in the air to Mars, land it wherever the fuck it lands, and, and, and just make, I just like, I just keep thinking, I'm sorry, but right now I'm really worried about the Martians. And people are worried if there are aliens out there. I'm actually worried. I think the Martians need a no fly list up there. I've said this before. I'll say it again that, you know, like, I don't understand here. And everybody's going, yay, and they're clapping him. And they, anyway, don't get in touch, Elon. Don't get in touch. Um, you know, and people say, oh, you innovation. Once went on a date with a guy, kept looking out the window, pointing to Mars. That was kind of interesting. <laughs> we also ordered a pizza with three types of fennel. And I said to him, I don't like fennel. And he orders pizza with three types of fennel on it. So then I had to order my own pizza. Well, you're a living example of life not being sequential in our in this conversation. And so is that date, for sure. I wanted to I wanted to talk about the way you shape character 
partially through withholding. Um, Cause like the way Lydia Yuknovich will say that you've rendered in bits and pieces of a self, you've rendered characters in bits and pieces of a self. Um, it feels like that's true. You know, Martin, John and Bina both, but there feels like there's a difference in the sense that we get bits and pieces of Martin, John, I think partially because he's in trying to be in half denial about what he's doing. And so there's ways in which his own self narration is a sort of a self preservation of himself, his self notion of him not being as bad as he really is. Um, and so the gaps are where we maybe fill that in as a reader, but with Bina, Bina's not presenting herself to us partially because of constraints going on in the world that she has an upcoming trial. And so she doesn't want what she says to incriminate her. And so there's this weird tension in reading Bina, the book, in that she isn't fully capable of speaking to us. And yet she also seems by nature to be someone to be very upfront and direct She's, she's giving, she likes to give commands. She likes to talk to us directly. And yet she, we know that, um, she's constrained. And I, I wondered if like when you've talked before about looking for ways to propel the story or the book forward, not mm. through story, but through form, I want not I, through plot, not through plot, it's plot. It's not through, it's not, not through story. It's plot. Yes. Okay. That's yes. That's a good distinction. Um, Is that one of the ways? Is that is this sort of way in which there are these um, story aspects that she has this upcoming trial and she needs to self-preserve and not self-incriminate? Is that one of the ways you pull the reader forward formally uh, without using plot? That's such a good point. I actually have to say, I just want to let the listener know that I'm actually having to write down notes as you talk, because otherwise I don't ever answer the question. <laughs> um, okay. I think that's uh, I think that's true. They're, I would say they're literary devices, perhaps. Maybe they're literary devices. Um, of course, like I say, if I knew exactly what I was doing, I would do it much better. There's no question. So... Um, if anybody wants to get in touch and diagnose what I'm doing, uh, you know, without mansplaining it to me, like diagnose it in a useful way that will move my work forward. Um, you will not get payment, but I will get better at writing. Okay. That obviously I'm being facetious. I want to go back to Martin John. Martin John is entirely in denial about really about what he does, but more importantly, his mother is in denial. And, the question I think I wanted to ask in that book was, would you like pr- protect your own child to the detriment of somebody else's child? Like, first of all, I want to be clear that Martin John, um, you know, he's, he's a, um, he's a molester. He's, but he's an adult, right? He's not, he's not, there seems to be some misunderstanding for some people. He's not a pedophile because all of his abuse takes place, but he's targeting grown women on the tube. And it is true that the book goes back and it, it divulges um, earlier incidences in his life. 
but I think sometimes there's a misunderstanding that he is an adult when those things are happening and he and he's not um I think if you look closely he's you know a young man or he's a you know he's maybe a few years older but he's not um anyway um so one of the things about that was really kind of complicity so when we so he's in denial obviously he's in denial um because otherwise he wouldn't be he wouldn't be going around abusing women we hope um and then the mother's in denial because the mother doesn't want to admit what she's been made aware of that her her son is is you know dangerous so she sends him to england um and she, her position is she feels like just get him out and tell him what to do right um and, and actually if you think about it there's a lot of warnings in in martin john i only realize it now so maybe that's where i picked up the warning from but the other thing that's important is, and I didn't realize this, it was actually the writer Joanna Walsh who told me I was doing this. Um, she teaches, I think, the book. We hear Martin John's mother through Martin John's head. So it's the second person indirect. Now, of course, when I sat down to write that, I didn't sit and construct, well, if I make the point of view like this, it'll like you just, I would like to know if George Sanders, you know, get in touch, George. Does George Sanders like sit down and go, well, I know what I'm doing. And if I use this point of view and if I pick and mix these devices, I don't think he does. I think he sits down um, probably with a bit more facial hair than me. And he just he, like grinds it out. He, he doesn't know what he's doing until he begins to see something of what he's doing. And then it's over. And then afterwards he finds out what he's doing. So, yeah, I think that's true in terms of denial. One of the things I want to point out though, that, and one of the things that I think is like a metaphor perhaps with, with Bina, is that with Martin John, we believe, we kind of believe that people who commit these atrocious crimes and, you know, are somehow other or different, but they're actually us. Like we are Martin John, we are him. Okay, we, you know, he's us and we're him. And so I think maybe that's the point that, that that you can't remove yourself from that equation. That as long as you, um, as long as you imagine that's just some distant aberration that's just non non human or non humanity, well then you're complicit in it continuing. And then in a way it's true in terms of Bina. Yeah, she's much more abrasive. She's direct, but she's seventy four or 76 whatever she is like 74 and you know she's an ordinary woman Bina is invisible nobody's coming to help Bina nobody sees Bina she's one like and I, I do think that we just don't give a flying fuck about old people especially old women I mean we, we've seen that in the pandemic we just left them all in LTCs and you know they you know the COVID just swept through and, and, and killed them it's a bit contradictory given the okay boomer thing the boomers did okay but i do see this invisibility um of old people and and that who's going to listen to you when you're old and more to the point you know people go oh she's done you know she, she doesn't know what she's talking about you know but but actually you do know like when you're old 
you know, emphatically when you're old because you've been around long enough. And I just wanted to, to create a woman who would just give it to you as it is, that there wouldn't be any apologizing. There wouldn't be, I mean, you know, when you've been around that long um, and you've put up with the things you've put up with, partly because Vina lumbered herself with them. Like I was very curious about who do we lumber ourselves with? And especially as women, like who do you, uh, inadvertently invite into your life and how hard is it to get rid of them mm. how hard is it to to it's easy to unload if that is that the word unload or upload and it's really difficult to offload the offload ramp moves so much slower than the, than the onboard the onboarding yeah so i was really curious about that okay in terms of the store like the so-called story aspects well, I mean, I mean, somebody said, well, they're kind of like mosaics, right? They get a little bit here and a little bit there. So that's an interesting analogy. Um, yeah, I imposed device, I imposed the device that Vina, and I have this thing, the redacted. So all those black stripes that you see throughout the word, underneath them is the word redacted, redacted. And I created almost like this other character that was called redacted, redacted from the group phoned redacted from the group found and so but the designer put like a black stripe over them and the idea would be that there was this voice that we couldn't hear and and in a sense that's true because there's always another voice there's always another voice that we can't hear mm. um and that's one of the perils of writing a novel is you can only give you know so many voices either the first the third the second or maybe the ubiquitous kind of godlike narrative but there's always another voice, right? Um, there probably is a redacted, there's a, probably a redacted in every single book that's ever written. So I just put this one in and it just worked as a, I mean, formally it was content because she's been arrested. Um, and it's a device that's often used in, um, in court documents. I mean, it's been, it was used an awful lot in, under the Trump administration. There was a lot of stuff that was redacted. So I think, um, you know, it was it was an interesting I'm always looking at I'm always curious about about just like writing in all its forms. Um, that project that you referred to earlier, that art project that I did uh, rereading the Riot Act and on. I mean, that was really about the act of public reading. Like what is how can the act of reading be used against people publicly? That was really what that was about, even though it was all tied up with labor history. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm really interested in okay, how can you create momentum in narrative? How can you create momentum in prose without having like you know plot as plot like oh well somebody died and then they got buried and you know then somebody discovered something. I just I just I'm not like, interested in plot, um, and I think plot can be created through these other literary devices. I mean, Cesar Iroh is really good at this. He creates momentum. He doesn't necessarily have plot. He creates momentum through prose, just through language. Mm. Um, and I suppose also, like, I'm interested in the velocity of prose, the velocity, the muscularity of language. So I guess I want that to be the um, mechanics, if you like, the, the anatomy of what might move the, the book forward. Well, I want to return to 
two things that you you brought up in this answer, and one of them is the invisibility of of women, mm-hmm. um, older women in particular. I, I I think of how Bina stands out when I think of in this regard because in the eleven years of me doing this show, almost two hundred episodes, I I only the only person I can think of is Mary Rufel, who who was on the show and engaged with this uh, topic in depth, um, how women after menopause become invisible. And she says in her, her piece in Granta, which is called Pause, no matter how attractive or unattractive you are, you've been used to having others look you over when you stood at the bus stop or at the chemist's to buy tampons. They have looked you over to assess how attractive or unattractive you are. So no matter what the case, you were looked at. Those days are over. Now others look straight through you. You are completely invisible to them. You have become a ghost. And then Katie Waldman in The New Yorker, who, I, who wrote this, I think, really deep and smart review of Bina. And, and mm-hmm. I, I think she's one, she's one of my favorite writers on writing yeah she said in a country that sees old women as foolish and disposable bina is accustomed to swallowing down cruelty and coughing it back up as aphorism and then later she mentions morella gala who said the much discussed phenomenon of women's anger has grown intensely marketable and Katie Wallman suggests that Bina has aged out of economic value and conventional desirability, and that Katie is tempted at seeing your book as a pointed challenge to the feminist marketplace, daring us with the question, do you actually care about this lady? And I wondered how that analysis struck you. Do you, do you see centering a character like Bina who's in her seventies, who doesn't have a heroic um, storyline. Do you see that as a challenge to the reader or as a corrective to the absence of those sorts of narratives? I I found that aspect of Katie's review. Great. Fascinating. To me, it was, and also a challenge to me to, to think on from it. Right. Like, And I have thought about it. And I would say the answer is no, the marketplace doesn't give a flying fuck about Bina. They're not interested in Bina. Capitalism is basically not interested in anything unless it produces cash. Um, I mean, it might be interested in Bina as far as, you know, selling her catheter bag or, you know, maybe (laughs) uh, it might be interested in, you know, like, like the, you know, the marketplace right now is constantly sending me the message that, you know, I've got a neck like a turkey and I need to lose weight and all these things that I just like, well, meanwhile, why aren't they targeting me with like basketball socks or something? Because that's yeah. actually where my true concerns lie right now. Um, there's a few points in this. Um, first of all, I'd argue that Biney is heroic. She's epic. She's epic in the fact that she gets 300 pages and you're in her mind and you're in her kidneys and that gesture in itself makes her epic because that to me feels like the kind of thing she's like a roman emperor like nobody gets that kind of space right i really love what mary said i haven't read mary's work i've 
She's been on my list for a hundred years. Um, I must actually look that up. Um, the second thing that strikes me about Bina, again, if we just think of the book as a, a gesture, is like one of the things that kind of interests me as well in so-called women's fiction, which is another handy kind of umbrella, is the extent to which it revolves around, can revolve around domesticity and relationships. And I think it was Ali, maybe it was Ali Smith who once sat on some jury or other, maybe it was the granter thing, and she remarked on this. She remarked on, on this. Uh... And so I guess it begs the question, well, Bina, you know, Bina's not looking for a boyfriend. Do, do you know what I mean? Like, Bina uh, isn't going to give you some story about romance. Bina, um, you know, and this is what's fucking fantastic to me about being an old woman. And I'd like to see more emphasis on this aspect of being an old woman. That you basically don't give a flying fuck. Like you're, like, I just think it's so interesting to me being now 50. I can't imagine why any woman would saddle themselves with some new marriage or relationship. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? You can have like, absolute freedom to do to be who you are what you want however you want without any of that and I think that there's a very interesting thing that happens and it's got everything probably to do with biology and that is the weaponization of romantic love against women so women like fellas don't have this fellas can keep reproducing until they're 102 um I assume I don't know about the biological truth of that so get in touch you know fertility clinics and correct me but my point is like for women they have these years between like 30 and maybe 44 42 where you know if they want to be a parent be a mother the the that under the kind of traditional kind of um normative heterosexual binary if you like that requires that some man deems them attractive enough to reproduce with and and now of course things are changing and women are saying breaking out of that and there are all kinds of alternate families and good um good because i don't think the two things are mutually exclusive i don't think uh, like i don't think you know so i think this is a huge pressure and i often have conversations with younger women about this where they have been sold the idea that it has to occur within this within this framework of of I mean, this is the heterosexuals and, you know, the heterosexuals are obviously very regressive. I mean, the queer community is, is way more advanced in this regard. But, you know, the heterosexuals are all still honey and boo. So boring. Um, and so I feel very strong. Weaponization of romantic love needs to be usurped and we need to find alternatives. And actually, uh, I would go as far as to say that the people who, who want to mate together should not necessarily be in relationships at all. They should just be like random people who want to be parents. And we should separate this all out and stop this bullshit. Because what it leaves is a bunch of women feeling like they're somehow failed to, stri- failed to thrive. Uh, meanwhile, those women are actually making incredible strides in all manner of other things. They're a lot more remarkable. I mean, to be honest, they are not just the vessels of like human reproduction. Anyway, obviously, I've gone on a bit of a tirade, but my point being, it really does trouble me that the, the, the emphasis that is placed on this, 
I mean, I have a lovely anecdote to share. I ran into a doctor I hadn't seen for a long time. <laughs> I actually love this woman. And we were walking along the road together and, and we had children that were kind of in a similar age range. And, and um, so we live in, live in the same neighborhood and I hadn't seen her for, I don't know, 15 years or something. And go along the road and, and uh, she was telling me her marriage broke up, whatever, but she had a new fiance and she was going to get married to him. And then there was this beautiful moment where we both arrived at this traffic light together. And she said to me, what about you? She goes, still single, huh? And I thought it was uh, so funny. And I said, yeah, I'm going to be single for 444 years. But I just thought it was such a kind of beautiful exchange. And obviously it was a bit insulting, but whatever. I'm a novelist. You know, it's, very, it's a very useful interaction. But I thought about it and I thought, well, you know, what kind of a measurement is that? What kind of a rubric is that? I want to stay with this and this question that you raised just a minute ago of why in the world would you saddle yourself with a relationship, you know, at this juncture in your life? Because you did also refer back to the ways in which Bina ends up saddling herself. Um, so she's heroic on the one hand, but she's also like one of the ways this book is, this book is a book, I think you could say about love in, in regards to female friendship. Um, yeah. And, and for sure. This book is a hundred percent a book about female friendship. I've been trying yeah. to say that for three years. Yeah. No, like, I think it is. For- <laughs> like, but, but I mean, you know, like all my books, like it's a big complicated stew, right? It's, it's not popcorn. It's right. Um, but that's the fundamental truth in the book. That's, I think, the achievement of the book. I think, I hope, I pray, I said something profound about female friendship. I totally think you do. And I, But the other thing that I wanted to bring up in relationship to that also is about um, self-sacrifice mm-hmm. for women and the question of saying no. Um, another way this book feels very much centered around women is around this question. It's something that I also discussed with Darren Negrifa in the last episode. And it's something that she also engages with. And I'm thinking about how in Martin, John and Bina, you have characters who both have people living in their houses that they don't want to be living in their house. And in Malarkey. And in Malarkey. Um, But the significance is different in Bina extends to many other things in her life. Eddie who crashes in a ditch outside her house and ends up at her door is taken in by her, but it stays there for 10 years, despite what Bina would ultimately want. She's physically abused and psychologically abused by him. He conducts illegal activities from her house. And even when he ultimately leaves, the possibility of his return sort of looms over everything that she's doing. So he's sort of there Mm. um, in a way when he's not there. But this isn't specific only to Eddie. She's willing to risk and sacrifice her own well-being for the cause of the right to die. Yeah. She won't kick out the crusties, the bearded activists who are camped out on her front lawn who are defending her, but you know, honestly, she would rather they weren't there. Um, one reviewer, I think quite accurately calls empathy, her Achilles heel. And yet she's acutely aware and speaks to us about the importance of saying no. In fact, she herself says, if I do nothing else in these warnings, I will train you to say no. 32 times. (laughs) (laughs) 
I mean, 32 that, times she tells you how to say no. This is what it looks like 32 times. Yeah. I mean, that feels like a very much another way the book is engaged with. Um, I mean, it's not exclusive to women, obviously, but uh, a gendered potentially exploration. And, and one of the ways you could, you could look at the journey for Bina, I think, as a character is around this question. Yeah, God, it's very, I'm all, you, you, yeah, it's good. Your questions almost put me in a bit of a stunned state because I'm processing them because they're all so thoughtful. Um, I would also, I'll, I would uh, also, and also I hate, I'm sorry to seem so combative. I'm not combative. This is me just thinking. This is a woman in thought. Um, I probably seem very combative. Um, and I shouldn't be apologizing for that because if I was male, I just think I was kind of probably edgy, you know. Um, Good point. Maybe not. Maybe not. I mean, men can phone up. You can call up and dispute that. Um, okay. So here's the interesting. Here's here's the thing. God, I keep saying here's the thing. It's very annoying. Um, she does say, doesn't she? Sacrifice is a silly thing that women do. So hilarious. I love this because you're prompting me to remember the text yeah even though i don't actually remember the text <laughs> sacrifice is a thing that women do it's true she does say it okay Bina essentially is fierce right she's fierce um i mean i kind of like to think of her kind of like a missile or something but yet at the same time she is softened in ways um like the crusty who comes in and he wants to use her toilet and then, and sometimes like when she gets stern with the crusties, then they, then they say, oh, cause you know, they're very earnest. And then she kind of softens. And I think, yeah, in some ways, I think um, it was just, I mean, we, you know, we want the whole picture of women, of women. We don't want these simplistic portraits that, you know, all good or, well, basically, yeah. Um, and so in a way, I've been interested since the beginning in the darker side of motherhood. I mean, my first novel opens with a woman saying she's so annoyed by the grief counsellor, right? And she's having hallucinations of naked men at each other all the time. Um, and in some ways, maybe it's about that. Maybe it's about the reluctance to complain that does seem to be a feature of the female condition. Um, and I know this because I complain all the time. <laughs> so as someone who gives out full time, overtime, time that it hasn't even existed yet, um, I'm just amazed at what, what women endure, what women have to put up with and what, what comes at women. Now, I'm, not, I'm certainly not trying for a moment to suggest that nothing comes at men, of course not. And I've always made this clear when I wrote Martin John, that book was a response to listening to 10 long years of public inquiries into the most horrendous sexual abuse inquiries, the most horrendous infractions and invasions of, of the female body. And it has to be said that, of course, in all of those sexual abuse inquiries, there are very, very many men who were also concurrently abused. I just chose to focus on women. Um, and there's going to be a lot of other writers who may focus on men and maybe I will carry on and I will focus on men. 
but um, so I just want to be very clear that I'm certainly not denigrating or being disingenuous because you know abuse and suffering isn't gender specific just like there are all kinds of class injuries it took me a long long time to figure that out like you know that there are class injuries that I don't know about because I didn't grow up upper middle class or middle class I grew up poor working class so I'm conscious of those class injuries but there are exist there exists other injuries that as I age I've come to to learn about um and so after issuing that caveat <laughs> um yeah I I think I think I want to make a riposte to to this notion of sacrifice and and you know if you think about I mean just the very gesture of very, very example of motherhood you know we always blame the mother like ultimately fellows can just skip on out but it's much harder for a woman to skip on out um and I salute the women that have done that and do that. I'm sure their kids aren't very happy about it. And I'm sure it's very, very damaging, but it's still a brave gesture to do it. Um, you know, so so I guess what I'm what I'm trying to say is is that the position that women find themselves in, and to some extent put themselves in, um, encourages perhaps a degree of martyrdom. And I think that, that that sort of judgment also exists between women. Um, and that instead of us being competitive or maybe being conditioned to be competitive in say um, in financial environments or, or environments which actually move like the quality of your life forward in a significant way, um, we can end up perhaps being intra-competitive about domestic bliss or whatever and and there's a degree of um you know I mean it is it's just a degree of like like for example that moment at the traffic lights with my um former one of my former doctors who's a really wonderful doctor that my life at that moment was summed up to who did or did not find me attractive since she'd seen me last not the fact that I've written four books um you know three of which have been you know accomplished works not the fact that nothing else all I amount to really is whether or not somebody has deemed me attractive enough to want to marry me and god help that poor person because I'm never getting married so in the event that that happens you know it was coercive <laughs> I was trying to I was trying to get someone a kidney transplant like they needed a passport like so it's that it's those those kinds of subtle messages that you get for example oh you take your work very seriously as though being a writer and trying to achieve something close to literature would would require you just do this on the side you know with a cup of tea for 10 minutes no and i'm fascinated by this question of what does it take for a woman artist to get her work done i mean perhaps unhealthily fascinated by it I, I really really loved Celia Paul's book a self-portrait I don't know if you've read that one but mm. it's it was I found it astonishing I wrote Celia fan mail because Celia had a baby and left the child with her mother and went to London to paint and I remember just being so grateful that she wrote that book because it 
I sat here and I thought, yes, that type of focus is what it takes. Um, and of course, there'll be a bunch of people listening to this who'll say, who's that Harrigan? And no, it doesn't. And you can do this in a very balanced manner. And I'm, I'm happy for you. I'm glad for you. It just, that hasn't been my experience. And maybe it will become my experience. But, you know, when you're making, um, when you're trying to make work that's interrogative, you're not necessarily going to have floods of, you know, the same way if you wrote like confessional essays. People will come to those essays because they want to find themselves or an element of their experience in those essays. Whereas, you know, when you're writing fiction, and that also has been a thing, uh, which I actually don't like. I don't want to go to fiction to find myself. I'm boring. I can find myself in the fucking mirror every day. And it's not that interesting. I want to go to fiction to find for the people I, I, I don't anticipate me meeting. Um, I want to be challenged. But, you know, so does that make sense? Um, I guess not, because you've actually asked me about self-sacrifice and that Binet is teaching us to say no. And yeah, she is. But it's very much, don't you think it's a kind of carrion call? Is that the right word? Um, to from a woman to women exclusively. And if there are fellas around the edges tuning in who somehow benefit from this grant. Yeah. But it's it's not, um, and, and there's nothing, if you actually think about the history of literature, I mean, James Joyce sat down and wrote thousands of pages about some dude wandering around, you know, breathing aloud. You know, um, you know, like the, the central conceit of focusing on on a man telling us all what to do isn't abnormal or astonishing in literature we love to be told what to do by fellows so how about for a change uh one woman there aren't that many women who 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 do that so i felt that it was time well let's i think this is a great time to actually hear a little bit from the book oh okay i really love that uh, film about Ruth Gated, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Do I have her name right? Um, uh, the the judge. Um, I love that. I love that image of her doing her work, struggling with cancer or whatever, but still doing her work. I, I found that so um, comforting to see that that woman. Like, and this is what I feel we need is more women in those positions. Like the message getting out that it's as important, your work is as important as somebody deciding whether or not they want to bloody marry you. Like it's as important as whether or not you ever own a property, which if you're a writer, you should probably give up that ambition right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's the end of my advice to writers section. Hope for a tent or a shed. All right, 133. What do we have? Ah, yeah. Ah, yeah, like this part. Okay, it's a cold reading because it was selected by Mr. David Nyman. Uh, I'm doing what I'm told for a change. Doesn't happen very often. I went to bed. Three times I went to bed, or rather, I took to the bed. Three separate times. How could you go to bed three times together? That's silly. When I say I went to bed, I don't mean the way you go to bed, the way you probably went to bed last night or the way you might be in bed now reading this. I don't mean I go to bed 
with a person. When I go to bed, I really go to bed all alone, all alone. There's no one invited in. There's no one to invite in. The first time I went to bed, I didn't get back up for two months. This time I haven't counted. But it's probably been more than five days since I lay down and started writing this. I never before wrote anything lying down, and that's a fact. I'm not for writing things down, but the tall man trained me. Have your story straight if questions are asked. You'll only get one go to reply, he warned me, and he's right. How'd you? Why'd you do it? I hear you ask. Do you doubt me? You doubt me. Never doubt me when it comes to bed. No woman was ever as good as I am at going to bed. You'd actually have to be a bed to better me. Another reason I cannot go to prison. They are fussy about when you go to bed and it won't suit me. I never liked how they make you get out of the bed when they decide you have to be out of it. And you've no way out of bed, even if you have no desire to be in it. Desire and decisions, see? A natural contradiction, a place for unnatural eruption. Eddie was an eruption, a natural disaster. The first human one won't be the last. Perhaps he's still going, erupting and disrupting like today. He might be gone, but look at what he left in his wake. Awake is an absolutely cheery goodbye. There will be no wake with Eddie except an earthquake. It had taken earthquake maybe to really be shot of him. Pity you can't order them over the phone underneath specific people. We've been listening to Anna Canis Gofield read from her latest book, Bina. So one of the major ways that character and form are sort of creating each other in, in Bina is around note-taking. She's self-censoring to us, but she's also sees note-taking as a sort of a, her last chance to tell the truth of what is happening. So there's this tension happening, but she's also taking notes because her memory is starting to fail her. And she's also writing notes ultimately to be useful to others by writing down her warnings of what not to do so other women won't suffer what she's suffered. But because she's writing down these notes on scrap paper and on the backs of receipts, it changes the way the language is and also the way you arrange the language. And I have two questions for you from other writers that coincidentally both happen to touch on this aspect of Bina. So I'm going to read those. The, the first is from writer and poet and poetry columnist for the New York Times, Elisa Gabbert. And she says, I felt that Bina almost read like a novel in verse. This effect is partly due to the formal constraint imposed on Bina by the scraps and receipts she is writing her missives on. And then she says in a parenthetical, 
it reminds me of the part in How Music Works where David Byrne explains that pop songs are three minutes long because that's how much music fits on a 45. Then she continues, the unit in these fragments feels closer to the line, the poetic line, than the sentence. As a writer who sometimes thinks in lines and stanzas and sometimes thinks in sentences and paragraphs, I want to ask you, how would you describe your novel's relationship to poetry? How did the narrower margins, even if those margins are fictive, in the poem-like passages, change Bina's writing and yours? Well, well, first of all, hello. How are you doing, Alyssa? <laughs> she's, uh, she's great. She's such a good writer. And I really, really also really love her on Twitter. She makes me laugh. Um, wow, what a great question. Okay, hmm. how am I going to answer this? I might have to do an index to get through. Such an interest. Well, first of all, I would say for me, poetry is the highest form uh, there is. Um, I do think the most interesting work is taking place very lightly in poetic forms in poetry. Um, and that's why I never attempt to write poetry <laughs> because I consider it the highest possible form. But I think I approach the novel like a poet approaches poetry. Um, uh, in a way, I feel like I have the same relationship with the novel that a poet does to poetry. Although, since I'm not a poet, I'm just making that up. Um, what I imagine a poet has to poetry. Um, it's a really, really good question. And, and I think that there's one moment in Vina where I realized after, you know the way when you give readings from your book, you read this bit and that bit. And it's just one moment. And I never get this feeling very often in anything I write. I remember once a writer asked me, did you never just write a line and think, God, I nailed that. And I said, never. <laughs> I never write a line where I think that's a great fucking sentence. Never. Sometimes I might write a line and read it six months later. It would make me laugh. But I never think I've nailed it. And the one few, the couple of times I thought I wrote something really strong, it got rejected. <laughs> so now... I never, I don't, I don't have that experience. Um, I think, but there's one moment in Bina and it's that line where she says, um, it's something to do with a well and the women are talking and she says, well, she says, a deep well for me to fall into. And it's just like three, it's a little stanza. I guess that's what the poets would call it. And I think actually those, that, that moment I was doing something I truly did something interesting with language. Um, and I, I feel that is a very interesting what's happening with language there. And also that maybe sums up the entire book um, in the way that I use the word well, and then I create this well, and then somehow it all comes together about this relationship for, between these women that we've been dancing around for 300 pages. Now, I think it occurs somewhere like in the, towards the middle end of the book. Um, I really like her analogy about music uh, with David Byrne. I'm gonna, I wrote that down. I'm going to look for that, for that book. Um, I'm really curious about musicality. I'm really interested in the note. Um, and so it's carefully scored, that novel. Uh, it's, there isn't, you know, 
usually when I'm writing a novel about the first say 90 pages I just know it back to front and insight out because I've written and rewritten it and and I'll take a word out and then I'll put it back in and and there's connections between a word that appeared three lines earlier so in that regards it is kind of like poetry I suppose um but it's not it's a novel the question is that our concept of the novel is so limited I mean, it's unbelievable if you imagine visual art let's think about visual art for a moment like we're not going into galleries saying or painting you know art has to have a frame and art can only have a picture of a pear you know or you know a thing of flowers like our concept of what we'll engage with in visual art so 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 much broader than what we will um expect or anticipate to find in the novel or even the the shape of the physical object of the novel. Exactly. You're never going to have a round novel. Well, like why the, not? I know, why not? Why not? Why not? a round novel. I mean, what about having a book that comes, you know, that's 26 chapters long, but it's 26 different items? You know, there could be all kinds of shapes. Oh, God, I'm giving away great ideas here. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and all, all across the land, publishers are going, shot that woman up. Um so I, I think, you know, I, I, I will say this about poetry. Um, when I was struck, I think I found my form because of poetry. Um, so with the first novel, I, I, that first novel that took 10 years, I struggled and struggled and struggled. I was dissatisfied. And then I went to see this concrete poet. Um, there, was a, there was like a symposium thing about if you remember what it was it was like an anthology that was published i don't know 60 years ago and it had all these concrete poets and they all a number of them that were still alive because they're not all still alive stood up and gave readings and and then there was this one poet uh judith copperthorne is her name and she is a she's a concrete poet and she did something very different and she she just like walked around the room walked up and down and she just threw out these things these lines these single words related to that time and that really helped me understand a human being could be comprised of instead of seeing like linear um arcs and these i hate arcs i hate it's so fallacious i hate the way time gets tackled in the novel i've always resented it it's tied up into these neat handy bundles but there's nothing tidy about time in life I mean, ask anybody who's ever been depressed, for God's sake, you know. Um, so, but I remember being struck both, both by the physicality of the fact that she chose to move when she read and just this notion that these fragments would create a moment in time. And so that was where I, I found that more episodic fractured form, which worked because the novel was about grief. So I owe like that to poetry. I mean, I'm really interested, for example, in Anne Carson's book. Um, um, hold on, I have to go look at the title. You know, The Bun in a Box. Knox. Knox, there you go. I mean, you know, it's this concertina of a book. And you pull it out, and this is like a life. I just think it's the most beautiful creation. And the fact that it has all those really beautiful pictures and postcards and um and so but to go back to Bina, okay so the other thing uh i don't i don't want to write novels that are narrated by writers 
I don't want to write novels that have writers at the center of them, but somehow I'm struggling. I'm still struggling to come to terms with how to, um, to deal with the fact that I'm aware that there's a reader reading and I'm aware that I'm writing and how to bridge that because I feel the need to bridge that somehow because I use direct address in my books. I use that kind of Brechtian because I want the reader to know that I know you're there. I know you're there and I know that I'm asking you to, to do a lot with me in this book. You know, it's like a, I guess it's the, the empathy as well. Maybe it's like the female writer who has empathy for the fact that people might be suffering. <laughs> and I'm sure people are. Like, I'm pretty sure people are suffering while they read my novels, like throwing them at the walls or burning them or, what? you know, write, writing vulgar things on the internet about me. And um, so I would, I guess I would, I would just argue on that point, or not argue, but I would posit on that point that um, I had to also think about materiality. Like, what does Bina have access to? Like, if I'm not going to write from the point of view of, like, I don't know, a frustrated translator or an academic, I'm not going to posit, I'm going to posit an ordinary woman. Well, an ordinary woman of her generation would, that's, that was a very much a, a feature of, um, People took notes off the radio. And I guess I love this accrual, the idea that ordinary, the ordinary person is constantly accruing knowledge. The idea that knowledge is reserved only for, you know, people in ivory towers or people, you know, I, I, I do find that kind of, um, I mean, it's something that's tricky with, with, with social class, but I refuse to believe that, um, that the poor aren't, um, interested and curious and having like interesting curious observations and thoughts about the world and accruing knowledge and collecting um and reading and and you know digesting the world like everybody else so if i'm going to write about someone who's ordinary i have to use the material that they have access to and so that's why i thought electricity bills receipts also people who live i mean kind of the country, people that live in rural Ireland as well, or not necessarily rural Ireland or rural anywhere, they have to use, um, sometimes they, unless they pay, they don't necessarily have rubbish picked up. Like, you know, it's, it's slightly different. It's not like living in a city. Um, and so, you know, they, they might want to make, redeploy the, those materials. I mean, I think it's really important in fiction to make shit up. I hate the way that contemporary fiction has become so reliant on whether or not it rings true or whether or not, I mean, it's just so silly. The whole point of fiction is making it up. But there are a couple of things where I, I will say, okay, what would she, I don't want to pretend like, I don't want to make out that Bina's a magazine editor. So I had to make it appropriate. And that also created, so the idea that it was on receipts also gave me uh, something spatially to think about as I wrote. It also was the way in which the prose unrolled. Um, I think one of the reviews did was critical of that and said, wasn't it somebody said something about, but I don't think the person computed that this was a gesture of social class. This was a way of saying, this is how much space this person has to write. Yeah, just yeah. as this is how much space this person has really to be heard or considered significant in the world. And I want to take people who aren't heard, who may not on the surface be considered significant and create on the page, um, you know, a, a, 
a place where they they have a stage and they're significant they're wholly significant to that book and i mean that's not new right like lots of people have have done that through through history through literature rather well my second my second question for you you've sort of um at least begun to answer with your example of the concrete poet and of Anne Carson. But I'm going to ask Darren Negrefe's question for you, which coincidentally is also about poetry. She said, I'm in awe of the skill with which you render your characters' voices, both in speech and in thought, and the ways in which you choose to structure these bursts of language on the page, where space seems as necessary in holding those voices as it would in a poem. Your pages sometimes feel like prose poems, and you've briefly referred in the past to the influence of experimental poetics on your prose. Could you please elaborate on how poets or individual works of poetry have acted as provocations in your own artistic development, and does this interest persist? Well, Gora. Mila Mila Mahagath Adoran a Gromochri in County Corky in County Cork. Um yeah, well actually it's funny because I did love the Kina Art Ulira, which of course is the central um poem in uh in Darren Negrifa's um memoir. Um I love I did love that uh, poem. Uh God, it's God, these questions. I'm almost like I'm not I'm inadequate in the face of such fine questions. Um, in terms of uh, voice, well, I've got a new take on voice. And don't forget, I revised my theories about 15 times an hour. So this is my theory from the last 75 hours. I get asked a lot about voice and uh, I just don't, really understand how you could have a novel if you don't have voice and people will say things like oh it's voice driven like it's almost pejorative uh, as though voice is is simple or you know sometimes I, I get that and I get a little testy a bit like the humor question like well what fucking planet do you live on where everybody you know the planet I live on the people who have the hardest time on this planet often have the most ripe sense of humor I mean anybody that's ever worked as a cleaner or anybody that's ever worked in a factory or whatever or on transit or something knows that you 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 can't survive unless you have a sense of humor anyway i already covered that so i don't know why i'm going back to it and likewise voice well i mean i just don't understand what what novel would anybody want to stay in if they don't hear the distinctive voice of someone i think i think um that's why it's so tragic in some ways when, um, you know, I mean, anybody who's ever done a, a jury will know this experience that you you can sometimes like read a whole pile of stuff and you could take a needle, you could stitch the whole thing together. It would be the same book. That isn't to say it wouldn't have interesting merit in it, but I'm really curious about, well, well, yeah, I just, you have to have voice. If you don't have voice, you, you don't, you don't have, you don't have anyone. Humans use voice. I, I don't know. So, so okay, I'm not doing very well with this question. It's such a good question. Oh, yeah. My recent theory on voice is this. So, so I really recently realized that instead of getting all kind of 
testy about people saying, oh, it's voice driven. Because I sometimes feel like it's a little pejorative and that they're underestimating the actual literary devices and qualities that and the way that I'm working with language, because it makes it sound like I just you know, transcribed anthropological interviews when that's not the case. I'm making this up. I'm constructing this language. I'm constructing these voices. Um, they have, they all have their own alphabets, like because, you know, every human voice has access to whatever language they have access to based on their influences and circumstances. But I had this remembering recently when I went to theatre school, I discovered that I had, I was told that I had a speech impediment. Um, because of course, when you go to theatre school, they make you sound like you're, you know, speaking, they want you, everybody to sound like you speak BBC Queen's English. Now things have changed a lot and now we recognise there's great value in regional accents. But when you're in theatre school, they basically try to eradicate your accent. Um, they want you to speak in a neutral, to be able to do a neutral tone, which I found very political. Um, because So I was constantly told well, it wasn't constant, but I have this memory of this voice teacher saying to me, darling, you'll never have a beautiful voice. <laughs> and, um, and, and, and God rest him, he's dead now. He was a wonderful teacher and, and he wasn't lying to me. He wasn't lying. He was saying, on these, with these terms of engagement, you sound poor and you sound ugly. Your voice sounds, um, it's, it's, it's impeded um, and it was, I had a, a pretty strong list, but I was thinking about it in terms of here I am 30 years later and I'm, and what, 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 what's great about this is in many ways, the, one of the main qualities that people talk about in my novels are the voices. Yes. So I feel like that's kind of like a beautiful full circle, circle yeah. in that you're saying because what he's really saying is the product of your your birth has damn you know you're you're impeded and you're damaged because of the whatever the social class of the way that you speak because you don't speak like i don't know who judy dench or someone um I mean, and it was a very particular time, right? It wasn't, I think now that things have evolved and we're just more intelligent about these things. Um, but I think that that is interesting uh, that you can take, and the best advice anybody ever gave me about writing fiction was when somebody says something in your work is a problem, turn it up and make it a feature. And I think that's the best, one of the best pieces of advice I've ever got. I love that advice. Yeah, another yeah. one was always eat hard-boiled eggs. So, all, so turn turn what's wrong into a feature and eat yeah, hard-boiled so eggs. Say, when people say, mm, okay, I don't really, what's going on here? Or, oh, you can't do that. Then turn it up and make it a feature. And that was true because people used to say a lot about point of view. They'd say, I don't understand the point of view in this. And then I'd look at it and go, oh, yeah, that is a bit strange. But um, Bosch... Then I actually started to kind of push back against point of view. And I'd feel like I don't want first person present, third person past. I hate this. This is too neat. And it's not, it's fallacious. Um, you know, that's not how we recall the world or history. It suggests that there's no continuum. It suggests that, that and I, I'm interested in that, that idea of a continuum, that things behind relate to things in front and the things in the middle and they're all in conversation with each other. 
publishing has become like such a strange singular gesture. And we're now appointing, literally appointing, whatever, three titles this season, and all the resources will go into boosting. And usually it relates to publishers having slung, you know, extraordinary amounts of cash. Um, sometimes in after very after towards very imbecilic books. Not always. Some of the books are great, obviously, but you know, I'm thinking of that nameless book recently that anyway, I better not say it out loud or I'll get cancelled, but you know the one I mean. <laughs> <laughs> you know well, the one I mean. Anyway, doesn't matter. Well, let's let's step away from poetry but stay with syntax a little bit longer in prose because several reviewers have compared you to your fellow countryman, Samuel Beckett. The Guardian compares the two of you in that your books are what they call existentially confounding and syntactically wild. The Walrus says, Bina's patterns of misremembering and epiphany sometimes resemble those of the speaker in Beckett's one-act play, Not I, that unnamed narrator seen as a floating mouth on an otherwise blacked-out stage delivers a disjointed monologue about a childhood of neglect and loneliness that led to years of silence. Finally, Katie Wallman says, the women's relationship, a bond forged against a backdrop of misogynist violence sustained over tea, lends stakes and solidity to what might otherwise read as an exercise in tone, a seance to bring Samuel Beckett with his absurdism, gallows humor, and lyrical foreboding back to earth. I agree as a reader with Katie Waldman that because there's so much of the small details of life sustained over tea that I actually never feel like I'm reading something that is Beckett-esque or that we are hearing from a floating mouth either. But on the other hand, when you were asked to say in an interview what your favorite line of writing was, and you read the following lines from Beckett's uh, worst word, ho, no choice but stand, somehow up and stand, somehow stand, that or groan, the groan so long on its way, no, no groan, simply pain, simply up. It made me immediately think of the lines from Martin John that Lydia Yuknovich picked out. Coats can drift, open. That's what coats are like. That's what women like, open coats, and a quick face full of him. He likes it too. He likes what they like. And it definitely made me feel like when I heard those. God, that's amazing. I don't hear any resemblance at all between them. Okay. <laughs> to me, it felt like that the music of your two of yeah. those two sentences were on friendly terms, not that they were. Well, okay, so there is an interesting Beckett story. Um, okay, I I read Beckett's journals and I read Beckett's journals because I wanted to read what he read. And I discovered stuff like, he, you know, his uh, letters with Robert Pinget. I discovered um, Spinoza. I mean, that's often what I'll do. Uh, I'll go to a writer's journals, diaries, letters, and I'll take out, I'll go through and find out, okay, what do they read? And one of the things that fascinated me about him was he, I mean, I was very lucky because I got to read this guy's thesis. I think it's going to be published. And it's about his time when he was young and he went to Germany for two months just to look at art. 
And uh, I, I was really, really struck by that. And I, I, I came across that quite a long, long time ago. And I think what he gave me was that, that it was reasonable to spend a lot of time with art, like to think of art, to take art seriously. Um, but don't forget, you know, my mother tongue, I mean, I mean, I have an interesting kind of backgrounds because, you know, I'm not really one thing or the other, but, but my mother tongue is the Bernal English. And that is also his mother tongue. Um, okay, so what I did do, because somebody asked me this question, whether Martin John was in conversation with Murphy, um, because, you know, Murphy, the man is tied in the chair and Martin John is tied in the chair. And I said, no, but then I went on from, and that was the um, academic and writer, um, John Day, who wrote actually a great book about cycling, about being a bicycle career. I loved that book. Um, and he's written another one about pigeons. Um, but what I did do was I, after John asked me that question, because he wrote a piece in the Irish Times and I got really struck, but you see, I just can't help it. I'm a bit devilish this way. So I thought, ooh, I think what I'll do is I'll take one Beckett title and I'll work that in throughout Vina. And I do that. Now, what's the title? Because I just looked at my shelf, just took one. Uh, and so I did that. I did like a, I did like, like darn in or tapestry in this one line. And then I responded to it. And it was really, I kind of was, it was like, he, it was like tipping sugar into a cup of tea because he <laughs> asked me. And then I thought, Oh, what an interesting idea. Maybe I'll, I'll use that as like a pivot. Um, yeah. So I actually do in Bina put in one reference to Beckett. And I, it was in a way it was because people seem to be looking for Beckett. So I thought, well, I'll actually give them Beckett. But nobody noticed, which is often what happens. Well, it's weird because I never, I never thought of Beckett at all. I guess I can see why when you, you know, I mean, I can sort of see why, but I, there's another part of me that thinks, well, you know, there are lots of other writers in the world who, I mean, El Elfried Jelinek, you know, uses fairly staccato, abrupt um, sentences. Like, I always find it interesting that you always reach for men. It's like, yes. but there are so many, there are so many writers, um, you know, you could look at some. Um, I mean, even if you look at the, if you look at the, what's it called that thing at the beginning, the. Oh, epigraphs? Epigraphs, sorry. I always get confused with epitaphs and epigraphs. First of all, the first one is Clarice the Spectre, and the second one is Louisa Valenzuela. So I'm kind of amazed that nobody sort of picks up on that and goes, oh, wow, she's, uh, she's off down there in South America. <laughs> like Valenzuela is from Argentina, and, and Clarice is from Brazil, you know? Um, and Clarice the Spectre has very interesting stuff going on in her books around language and voice. That's um, an understatement. Um, so I find it really funny that even when I put like signposts in, uh, and I mean, I'm not upset about it, like God, um, I mostly, the work of his that I know is mostly his plays. Well, I wanted to ask you about plays because you have mentioned your background in theater mm -hmm. and you have mentioned the direct address, this Brechtian move of Bina breaking the fourth wall and, and talking to our audience. But I was also thinking about to bring this up back to other women writers, when you were uh, in conversation with Talia Field about personhood, oh yeah, and she and she kept describing about her own work, 
about the performativity of her own work and about how she's focusing on situations rather than stories and on staging rather than setting. And she kept connecting these elements to your work, the ways in which she felt like maybe there were some connections between what she was doing in this sense to your work. And I also wondered, like, um, like the Irish Times said about you or said that you had a playwright's impatience with description, for instance. I mean, am I stretching too far to connect that to your background in, in, in plays? Well, I think I'm just impatient, period. Uh, I really <laughs> resent this. I really don't like this. Uh, there's this technique that happens in literary fiction. It's not even a technique, really. It's just a it's just like a fucking turning on the tap where people will just pile detail on top of detail and hope it adds up to something, you know, you know, the blue door that I came in with my blue socks on and I stared at the fridge and it was also blue. And, um, you know, this type of, there's a very particular, I just find it so banal. Um, and I really object to the way that the weather is abused in literary fiction. Because <laughs> you know what? The weather is interesting enough. You don't need to make the weather more poetic than it is, right? So I'm a little impatient with that because I feel, I guess maybe I object to, as well to that easy relationship where the readers kind of, you know, yeah, basically afternoon tea. You know, they know they're getting a cup and they're going to have the tea and then they're going to have a sandwich. And then the reader settles back and the reader wants to be transported and they want to be, um, they want to forget where they are, you know, and drift off to wherever. No, I'm not interested in that. Um, there's loads of people who you can who'll do that for you. Knock yourself out. Um, no, I'm kind of more interested in the tea spilling on your legs. You're noticing that it burns, maybe not realizing how long your trouser could be wet for because you have to sit in it because you spilt it on your leg on the way to work and the bus is an hour and then you've got to do a 12 hour shift and then you notice that the leg is still wet and you don't have any clothes to change into and you're not allowed to go and change because there's very strict rules on how often you go to the toilet and the reason that you can't go to the toilet is because they think that normal human functions are an affront. And then the problem is now you've got a bladder infect. You know, that's what interests me. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, that's actually quite a lot of detail. But I'm not interested in the fact that your trousers were checkered. You know what I mean? I, I hate the way that landscape as well is, is deployed. Um, I don't know why I object to it so much. I don't see anything to do with playwriting or it's just, I just don't like being lulled. If I want to be lulled, you know, I'd listen to Handel or something. Well, could you could you speak a little bit to some of what you've written outside of your uh, novels about um, a, a common or too common line of inquiry about what of what you've written is something that you've actually lived? Like if I were to say to you now, well, have you ever spilled tea on your pants? And is that why you you write this this piece about? Uh, spilling tea in your pants and a bladder infection. Um, you've written about not only this, what you find a problematic relationship to the imaginative and to seeking out the autobiographical within a work of fiction and how that devalues art, but also a gendered overlay on that. Of course, men may get that question, but women get it in a specific 
women are demanded or um, compelled to give some sort of com- confessional dimension to something that may be entirely imagined in a way that men might not. As a, I mean, yeah, it is demanded that women, it's almost like we can take a piece, we can take a book from a man, read a, man, read a man's book and go, Jesus Christ, is a great fucking writer. Close the book, carry on with your day. We pick up a book by a woman and we can't understand. It's not enough that she might just be like a very, she might be just very talented with language and she might be a good writer. We have to have some reason why she was able to do this. That's got nothing to do with her talent. That somehow she must have uh, borne this or, you know, I mean, it's just so absurd. Um, I would say, okay, so what you're talking about are nonfiction pieces that I've written for places like The Guardian, um in particular i've written a few for them and i do think there's a gendered overlay hopefully it's getting better it's complicated by the rise of auto fiction um which again is interesting because one of the things i really love about literature is you know truly great writing is indisputable somehow so even if i say i don't want to read writers Right. I want to read a novel from the point of view of a writer. Then I'll pick up a novel from the point of view of a writer. And the person who wrote the novel is a brilliant, brilliant stylist. So, of course, that goes out the window because I'm in the presence of brilliant prose. And any, every writer is hungry, hungry for, for language and prose. Um, so it's complicated because in a strange way, women have actually owned that now and are making a space and they're making autofiction and autofiction has become very significant and important and also autofiction came through visual arts with writers like uh chris kraus eileen miles um you know those women and writers in particular come to mind um and so you know it's it's brewed into some kind of unique kind of craft of its own um and i i've got nothing but regard for for, for those works when they're interesting and the, the work is somehow indisputable. But I, what bothers me is, and this has got nothing to do with art or literature, this has got everything to do with the market, it's got everything to do with publishers. It's got everything to do with the kind of laziness of their taste and their taste making. That as soon as they decide, oh, something, oh, that's working, they'll just, you know, we'll just be flooded with it. And, and the problem is it's, it's reducing, it's reductive because it, it puts everything into the only that appetite and then everything becomes framed by that. And, and not every writer, not every woman writer is writing autofiction. And we don't anticipate men to be writing autofiction. We just assume that they're, they're, you know, curious and good at making things up. And do, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it was just important for me to make the terms of engagement literary terms and, and, and to understand that we do shape the conversation around literature. Um, and for me, the rise of confessional memoir writing has been, has, has troubled me in some ways. And then in other ways, it just, again, it just comes down to the writing, but stylist confessionals are, are easier to get published like especially when you're an emerging writer and you're just starting off if you write a confessional type essay you you may find that much easier to find a home for that than say 
a complex prose poem, you know, that's demanding and whereas, you know, bad boyfriend stories or whatever, or, you know, that, that there's been a, a period of time where the style is confessional. And often when I went to talk at universities to students, I would urge the women, you know, like, don't put stylist confessionals in the world just to make a publishing platform. Like, take your work seriously and put something in the world that, you know, why are we still reading Walter Benjamin's memoir essays? Because he's a really great stylist. That said, like most kind of positions or arguments, you could probably drive a truck through everything I've just said. So, but it, it just for me, it's an uncomfortable place. Yeah. If you think about it, it suggests that autofiction that I am required to be living an interesting dynamic life. And the fact is that um, most writers aren't living interesting dynamic lives. We're indoors, deprived of vitamin D, surrounded by three fern plants. And, you know, in my case, presently going off to work at the COVID lab so we can keep the lights on. So, you know, I'm not that that's what sort of troubles me about that, that I must put my experience on the barbecue and also that that I'm required to supply biographic snippets about how my life like it would be much easier to put Martin John to have put Martin John in the world and said um oh my dad raped me or something uh you know that rather than insisting this this book be taken as a piece of literature with literary terms of engagement, which yeah. are language, syntax, form, character. Yeah. Not here's the reason, here's a reason, you know. Um, and I actually found that in fact, when you insist on literary terms of engagement, people will give you literary terms of engagement. And that somehow it's just become kind of convenient for publishing that marketing is obviously on the rider these days. And in fairness to publishers, it's really fucking hard to get uh, attention for books. I mean, they are competing with, you know, streaming services and in my case, Penguin documentaries. Um, you know what I mean? So I'm not, I mean, we, we need to, in some ways, maybe it's just that publishing is just so anachronistic. We just need to shake things up. And I don't know how, good God, if I knew how I'd be selling more books. I mean, I really loved your recent New York Times piece, for instance. Well, that's, yeah, that was an enigma, because I actually, that's an enigma, that piece. Well, I uh, want to ask you about it, because, you know, you, you, in, you, Bina, one of the ways you could frame Bina is a, is a book exploring a woman who feels like um, older people should have the autonomy to be able to choose when and how they die. And I think autonomy is important in your books, like whether you have autonomy over who's living in your house, over whether you're being touched how much autonomy old people should have over the, the choices as their lives are coming to an end. But, um, I mean, of course you could, you could demand and, um, for the book to be taken on its own fictional terms. And you wrote this really amazing biographical piece in the New York times about a close friend of yours who committed suicide and about how you're working in the COVID lab and you're working as a legal witness around legal euthanasia in Canada. Volunteering. Volunteering as a as a legal witness for legal euthanasia in Canada are partially motivated pursuits for you in, in honor of what you would imagine your friend would, would do. Um, but I wondered, were you, was there like, 
was this under the urging of, you know, your publishers? Like this would be, this would be the best. No, God, no, no. But I was deeply conflicted. Mm-hmm. I was deeply, deeply conflicted about whether it was intelligent to write or publish that piece and whether or not I was in some way, shape or form betraying the, you know, the sacristy or sac- sacredness that is friendship. To me, friendship is very private, um, which is why I find it so strange when writers die and suddenly everybody just fills up the newspaper with emails from them. <laughs> no, friendship is private. Um, you know, um, it's not something that you should be monetizing or, um, although of course we all love reading writers' letters. Um, no, um, that actually had much more to do with um, the themes in the essay. It just was so weird the way it coincided because actually the New York Times accepted that essay a year earlier, mm. a year before I didn't have, a, a, I don't think I even had a publisher in America for Bina because Bina met a lot of resistance. Uh, it came out in 2020 in the UK and it came out here just now, but it was originally published in 2019 and it was finished in 2018. But, you know, I don't know why, but there has been a history of resistance to my books by mainstream bigger publishers, which is really silly because I've done it three times. You know, I could understand like the first time, but I was a bit shocked that it keeps going on, but I just figure I must be doing something right. Um, if you meet resistance, you're obviously doing something that's, you know, resistible. Well, <laughs> it's me- not irresistible. So maybe <laughs> that's a good thing. But the essay, um, no, the two concerns. Okay, so I had volunteered as a witness uh, for medical assistance in dying. We don't call it legal euthanasia here. We call it MAID, medical assistance in dying, which is a federally uh, mandated uh, legal right under the, it's a healthcare service now. And so for a long time, you needed two independent witnesses to sign your form before you could apply. So I would go um, to the hospital or to people's homes and witness the forms for them. You know, it's very difficult to talk about suicide. It's very, very, very difficult to talk about losing a friend. Um, But I was just so devastated and broken in a whole new way that I never imagined could be possible by the loss of my friends. Um, and I've experienced a lot of grief and loss in my life, but this death just broke me in a whole new way that I, um, I didn't think it was possible that I could be any more broken by death. And so I had such a hard time understanding autonomy in that act that she had autonomy, that she had other choices. I had such a hard time conceiving that I didn't entirely fail that human, that human who had been so, so good to me, that human who had come and helped me in so many ways when I was at my lowest. And just that just broke my heart. I mean, I'm still brokenhearted about it. Um, but when I started to volunteer for MAID and I went into the room, and I met those various people. Um, it just reminded me so much of her. And that's the only way we can really carry on when we lose someone like that. 
to try to reimagine their spirit as being with us because otherwise you know you just crawl up in a hole and you just you just basically possibly die of a broken heart yourself right and I think that's one thing you learn when somebody takes their life who doesn't need to be dead doesn't really want to be dead they just want whatever terrible 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 feeling is at them to end they don't want their life to end and that's so distinct from somebody who is end of life who has lived a long fulfilling life and has been you know and is encumbered by a terrible terminal disease and they are suffering that's so different from somebody who is just so you know whatever whatever circumstances or whatever brain chemistry or whatever is at them they want that feeling to end they don't want their life to end and you know when when you lose someone in that way you learn that all that happens is 42 new people become broken and that if only at that moment when they feel their life has to end, this is distinct from end of life uh, because my friend was, was young um, and wasn't unwell. Um, and so you just wish that somehow in that moment when, and I actually really understand that. I understand uh, I do on some level. I think maybe as a novelist, like I'm not bereft of imagination. I can understand very easily what it is to feel suicidal. But if only there was a way that that person could see how broken all of those people are about to become and that that they are loved and that 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 we want them to stick around. And I mean, then I believe there are circumstances where it's very reasonable for somebody to end their life because maybe they're in such long-term mental suffering, like this argument about whether or not you should be able to get medical assistance in dying as it relates to severe mental illness. Um, but that wasn't the, those weren't the, that's not available in Canada. Um, I think it's available in um, Belgium. Uh, and so... I don't know. I, I, I was very conflicted about it. And I was very conflicted about saying how my friend died. But I realized that it was also, you know, to go back to complicity, that you're complicit in that you you add some level of shame to that. And and all I'd want instead is that nobody else has to sit where I sit and know that they failed a friend. Yeah. You know, people will always say, oh, you can't think of it like that. And rationally, I can go, she had other choices, but it doesn't matter. You know that you principally know that you have failed very badly, your friend, and not just you, like everybody failed that person. And, and it's, I, and I'm, I feel differently about this. I feel like, no, let's, let's sit with that. Let's actually understand the implications of that. And let's talk about dying. Let's talk about Let's have healthy conversations about dying because as soon as you're born, you're one step closer to dying, whether you like it or not. And then maybe people aren't so isolated with it. And maybe then people can have conversations. If there are daily conversations going on all around us about the fact that we're all dying, then those who have like an overwhelming at that moment urge to be dead could, could find some conversation to be included in, in which they could I don't know. I just, I guess because I'm a novelist, I have all these kind of imaginings of how how things could be better 
in, I, I know it sounds ironic having just given such a kind of Wittgensteinian, <laughs> like pessimistic, dismal view, but I don't, I don't believe that, that it's helpful for us to, I don't want to just pick up and carry on. I mean, I don't want to pick up and carry on without some learning, without some way of, of, so the only thing I've figured out to do now is to try to make pacts with people. I mean, obviously, maybe everybody listening to this will never ever discuss their um, depressive episodes with me because they really don't want me making a pact with them. But rather than saying to people, don't kill yourself, say, like, because it's pretty difficult to say that unless the person says, listen, this is what I'm going to do. And usually those aren't the people we need to worry about. The people we need to worry about are the ones that are suffering quietly, as I'm sure anybody that's lost um, somebody to suicide can attest. Um, the people who are like broadcasting are not necessarily the most at risk. Um, and so, you know, I just feel like saying to them, well, I need you to keep living, to keep me company, to bear witness to how dreadful the world can be and also concurrently how great the world can be in the less, with less frequency. It seems to be great. Predominantly, it seems to be pretty <laughs> terrible. Um, and that seems like, well, maybe that's all I found. And you know, the only thing I, the thing that I read that really, really, really helped me, the only thing I read that really helped me was Ian Lee's book. Um, oh, I've heard great things about that book. Yeah, her, I think it's a memoir. Well, there are two. There's a novel, it's just extraordinary. And there's a memoir, Dear Reader, I Write to You in Your Life from My Life, Sorry, Ian Lee, if I have the title of the book wrong. Um, but thank you for writing that book because it was the first time I read something and I had the, had the smallest sense of what my the people I've lost to suicide would have been feeling at that moment. Mm. And I realized, oh, they may actually have been calm. Whereas it's very distressing for us to think of the person just like in heightened, heightened, terrible, terrible distress. And it really, and that's actually the power of achieving literature when you can, uh, in this circumstance, because it was memoir, nonfiction, you can release the pressure valve in someone and allow and more nuance into their understanding of a circumstance that they have no particular access to because it's so emotional for them. Mm. And, you know, it's a bit like Bina says about Phil, like it's wrong, it's wrong, it's wrong. Sometimes things just feel wrong. Um, but I found that really interesting. She's a wonderful writer as well. Um, yeah, so sorry, I was a bit of a long soliloquy, but, but ultimately I'm really glad I wrote that piece. I, I, I mean, I'm glad I published that piece. Uh, I wasn't, I was very afraid. I actually thought, well, it's America. They're probably going to, you know, give me death threats or something, right? Because of, uh, I mean, at the time it was when it came out, right? It was just after Trump had gone. And actually it was the opposite. I had the most beautiful, beautiful messages from people. Beautiful messages. Um, and I didn't actually have anybody who said, you know, like you're a sinner and shame on you or... There are states here that where it's legal, assisted suicide. Yeah, for sure. But I think that the voices that get heard the loudest when you yes. write a piece like that are sometimes the most the outraged. Who, yeah, the most outraged who will like write you horrible things like "I want to cut you open and yeah. you know disassemble you," which is <laughs> which has happened. Like, like which does happen. Like people, but actually, that's one of the great things. I always think 
people can surprise you. Readers can surprise you. And I say that to writers when I'm teaching, like never underestimate readers. They will surprise you. They're able for a lot more than you might imagine. And it was so moving. Um, the messages I got from people were so moving. Um, I'm really grateful for them. And I'm sorry that I couldn't write back to everybody because I just would spend, you know, six months writing letters to people. And it's hard enough right now to, to write a paragraph, to write a write an unheapy paragraph. Um, yeah, so that was the story there. But it was very unusual for me to do that because as a rule, I don't really do that. But sometimes also there's something more bigger than you, you know, or your whatever your values are on these things. That's about, I just felt like, I, I think COVID was a huge factor for me. I mean, we're so, I feel like with COVID, we're just so, again, we're broken in a whole new way that we never imagined it was possible, which is stunning to think because humans have been around for so long. And at the time, I just felt like people were so, so lonely and isolated. People, I mean, were burying their loved ones online. I mean, you know, I had to bury a friend last year and I couldn't go to the funeral and I had to watch it on the bloody TV at three o'clock in the morning. And it was just devastating that these people that have lived these incredible lives and been so important. And I think the long-term care crisis as well really upset me, um, the isolation of elderlies. Um, and that's the beautiful thing about actually having resistance to your book. Because when you have resistance to your book, the publishing gets staggered because nobody wants to publish it. And then, then they decide they want to publish it. And then three years pass or two years pass. And meanwhile, your book is aged into the world. And it's so weird because, of course, by now it was finished in 2018. There was no pandemic. And I have this woman taking to the bed, which is basically what a lot of us probably had to do in the last year. Um, just like Martin John. Martin John came out maybe two years before the Me Too movement. Um, you know, so it's strange that, but with Bina, has been lovely in America because she's aged into a world and she has a different resonance in America now. Um, and also she's had enough and I feel like it, the timing was great because I mean, yes. bloody hell, America had really, truly had enough of that, you know, awful. I mean, I just can't even find a language to describe that former president of yours. Like, yeah, like, yeah, demented trumpet. I don't know what you'd call them, right? <laughs> yes. But, you know, there was just this overall sense of, like, we just can't take any, we can't take another minute of this. Um, and so Bina was, was, was birthed in that country at that moment. I mean, it was beautiful. I couldn't, I mean, thank God nobody wanted it until that moment. So, you know, there you go. Um, hopefully she'll find more readers there. You know, I love Americans. I love Americans. I think they're great. Uh, I love American writers. I always think they're very great. They're very direct. If you ask them a question, a practical question, they give you a practical answer. You know? Well, how so about, there you go. How about <laughs> one last practical question for you to, 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 to come to an end? Um, because you've said that you, you, you want to write novels that explore what a novel might become mm -hmm. rather than to reiterate what's already been written. And I feel like each of your novels is going farther in that realm. And I guess I just, you've, you've alluded to the fact that you're working on a fourth novel. And I, I wondered what the frontiers of, of form or what um, open questions for you of 
Because if you're always placing yourself towards um, what it might become, you're obviously also placing yourself in a place of not knowing. Um, but I'm, I'm curious about what that frontier is like for you right now um, in working on your, your fourth book. Well, it's hell, really. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like undulating despair, where it's like despair and despair and despair. It's kind of like a football match of despair, uh, where you're scoring own goals on the on the wrong ends. Um, you know, it's uh, it's never. I would like to say it's never uninteresting, uh, but it is frustrating because you can't see you know, you can't necessarily see the horizon. Um, yeah, yeah, it's not, uh, it's definitely not a joyful process um, at all. I, I originally conceived of, of the, the books actually as a quartet and I was gonna publish, you know, two books together. I was gonna write them together and publish them together. Because uh, I wanted to see what that experience would be like to make a diptych of works and then which way would the reader go. But in the end, when I wrote the draft of Bina, I realized it would just subjugate her to a lesser. Like it would like mean that she doesn't deserve a whole book. And I realized, oh, I'm probably doing that because I don't think it's enough, one woman, right? And then the novel that I'm, so I had to recalibrate the novel that I've been working on now for like four years because I was writing it concurrently with Bina. And um, yeah, basically it's a bit of a disaster at the moment. Uh, well, it's not really a disaster, but you know, you always think it is a disaster. I've, I've always worried about my books. Um, even when they're finished, I still worry about them. Um, it's just, can't, it's, just, it's just really hard. I can't believe how hard it is to write books. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's what the frontier looks like right now. Um, is there a penguin walking towards the interior on the frontier? There is actually, um, there is giraffes. There's giraffes in it. Um, there's just about everything in it, actually. There's just so much in it. I probably need to, you know. I've been wondering when you were going to start including giraffes in your work. <laughs> um yeah, oh God, even like you can tell, like even as I'm asked about the book, my brain just goes into this horrible kind of comatose state where it can like vaguely hear the distant sounds of, of a trumpet sonata that hasn't quite finished being written yet. <laughs> I don't know. You know, that said, um, I, you know, I, 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 every time, like I, at a certain point in the publishing process with Viner, as it looked like, it looked like she wouldn't find a publisher in America. I started to lose my courage. I thought, well, maybe is, this is too difficult and maybe I need to write, you know, less challenging books because at the end of the day, I don't like all this constant rejection because you feel rejected, you feel rejected, rejected. It's like, okay, what's it going to take? Like, how much more do I have to prove? Yeah. Um, that my books have value and, and that there are readers who want to read them, right? Because they've been very critically acclaimed. And New York, New York Review of Books is an amazing place to land in the United States That's for a publisher. True. That's true. You're in good company very, there. I'm in very good company there. And I love being on that shelf. Uh, 
Yeah, because you usually have to be dead to get published by them. And I'm not dead yet. Yeah. Uh, feeling a bit dead. But so, but having said that, you know, that just came out and that happened, I guess, last year was when the deal was done. But but it's hard. Like I'm 50 and you know, rejection is kind of like grief. It accrues, right? It's not uh, you know, you don't you know, you don't forget. You just you, and the other thing is, you know, you write these difficult books, but then after you've written them, you're just a human and you just really want want people to like you. And then you fear that no one's going to like you because you've written a book that, for whatever reason, posits difficult questions. And so then you kind of want to take it back. Like you don't want to take the book back, <laughs> but you, you want to take back the idea that you're unlikable, which, again, is probably a problem of the female condition. Because uh, I don't think Philip Roth, you know, lost sleep worrying about whether or not people liked him. I doubt it. Um, so I think... I do feel a bit sometimes like, oh, I'm losing my courage. I've got to stop writing these difficult books. But then I think I'm constitutionally incapable of writing like simpler books. And I don't think I'd write them very well. And and there's people who write them really, really well. So then I should just quit altogether and just read. Um, you know, but anybody who knows who's a anybody who writes, you know, a lifetime's work because I'm 50, right? And I've been doing this for 30 years, knows that this is almost like kind of a, a religious vocation or some sort of chronic disease where, you know, you can't function if you don't work. You have to write in a way that you don't feel, I think Vivian put it so beautifully when I interviewed her, Vivian Gornick, because I said, you know, do you feel unwell if you don't write? And she said, no, she said, I feel an unease. I thought that was a really... Um, excellent way to describe it I would say I feel kind of unwell um, um you know if I'm not working and I'm always thinking about working I'm always thinking that I'm not working like I haven't written I often think oh God, I haven't written anything and I have to look at the shelf and see no no there's one two three books over there and that artwork but it always I don't know if other writers experience this it's like a strange amnesia where you feel I haven't written anything and it's to do with the beauty that's the blank page because like like in almost every other area of life like if you're a footballer or you're a carpenter or you're a plumber you get better at being a plumber you get better at being a footballer very few people get worse but as a writer you constantly have the prospect of getting worse you constantly face the fresh blank page of new failures and and in some ways it's wonderful it's liberating it's fantastic because it's so equalizing like that blank page is always waiting for you and no matter what they take away from you no matter what circumstances you find yourself in as long as you have a pen and you have a blank page nobody can stop you from writing on that page so I kind of love that element of it um because you know there's a lot of good reasons not to to bother <laughs> <laughs> so, you'd, so you'd have to have like yeah. some deep-seated obsessive like compulsion in your in your bone marrow your constitution that would you know make you continue and if you think about a history of literature look at I mean look at these writers who nobody read while they were alive I mean thank god they made their work and left it in a neat stack above the soil so that you know 180 years later we could all come back and go hey 
this is really great. I, I mean, I don't, I'm pretty sure Robert Walzer, when he was like counting buttons in the asylum, you know, didn't bank on, you know, this short woman on the second floor here, you know, really happy to have Robert Walzer on her shelves. Like did that man in that asylum counting his buttons think about this old dame who was born in 1971, you know, with her various, you know, dodgy ailments, finding, you know, and I just think there's so many writers that just give me, have given me such courage. Um, I mean, if you look at someone like Henry Green, like Henry Green stopped writing when he was 47. Mm. Um, and I was really fascinated by that. I mean, he also drank himself to death. Um, so, you know, I was fascinated by that. Why did he stop when he was 47? And I think I was totally fascinated because at the time I was 47. <laughs> So, you know, I think it leads to, personally, I think it's a very interesting life. It's not an easy life being a writer, but it's not an uninteresting life. And for me, I think it, it, it's working out okay. Like, will it continue to work out? I don't know. You know, it could not. Like, lots of people just don't write again, right? Maybe, who knows if I'm going to live? We don't know, right? Right. So I do, I think it's like a kind of interesting kind of death anxiety that I'm propelled by, you know, that I just, what will happen if I don't make my work, you know, God, I don't know, if I don't think I've got had enough success to warrant an obituary yet. I'm not sure how much success you have to have before they write an obituary of you, but I think I've actually given them some great like lines from my bitch <laughs> about how I felt about dying. Yes. In fact, probably the most colossal measurement of my output is her <laughs> remarking on how she doesn't want to be dead or she's worried about dying. <laughs> hey, maybe there's the next novel. Yes. You know, a novel in obituaries. Yes. All right. Don't love steal it. it. Don't I'm not going to steal it. Don't, no, I'm not worried about you stealing it. Don't steal that, listeners. Donate. <laughs> Donate. Donate to the ongoing obituary that is. <laughs> <laughs> well, Donate it, to this space. <laughs> it was a pleasure talking to you today, Anna Kena. Thank you. Thank you for such thoughtful, extensive, pondering questions. It's it's so lovely to uh, to get such very uh, thoughtful questions and. But you see, the trouble is now I'll spend the next six months thinking about some of these questions. And then I'll have the answers in about four books time. If I won't probably make four more books. Well, I've only got 20 years left. If you left. do make the, the fourth book, it should be the, the, a novel and unanswered questions. The, uh, yeah, a novel and unanswered questions. Although I think Paget Powell already did a novel in questions, didn't he? Yeah, I'm really glad that in some ways that because you had that rule where we couldn't be on the interview unless you went to Portland, right? Now I that did. was the pandemic, you had to lift that embargo. Yeah, I think it's lifted forever now. But I have to say, I love Portland. Portland, I love it in Portland. So I would happily go to Portland. And so Portland, invite me to Portland. I want to come back to Portland. Yeah. I used to go to, down to Portland to do Constantina camp. But I've recognized that I'm shit at the Constantina. And so I have to stop that. <laughs> Yeah, great place, great tacos, great people, great houses as well. There's old houses. Great <laughs> amount of rain. The only bad thing is we're all on Cascadia and we're all fucking going down together. Yes. Once it starts rocking down there, it's going to be rocking up here. And basically, as I said to my family, well, based on the building I live in, don't phone. 
we won't survive the earthquake. <laughs> Consider it's gone. <laughs> we were talking today to Anna Kana Schofield about her latest book from New York Review of Books, Bina. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift, home office of me, David Naiman. You can find more of Anna Kana Schofield's work at annakanaschofield.com. And you can find out more about joining the Between the Covers community and supporting the show into the future at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or... If you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team who helped make the show run as smoothly as it does. Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Jacob Valla in the art department, Mishwina Cantor in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the summer and winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating this outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.